Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mime Stories. Today, I have the honor to speak with Dr. Claudia Six. PhD. After growing up in France, where people are more comfortable talking about sexuality, Claudia came to the U.S. for college. A degree in geography, an MA in psychology, and a PhD in clinical sexology led her to her career as a sex therapist. She's author of Erotic Integrity, about how to be true to yourself erotically, and gave a TEDx talk about performance anxiety in women. Her passion is coaching clients on how to have better relationships. Today, we talk more about what is sex therapy and about five common questions she's asked by individuals she works with. Welcome, Dr. Six. Hi, Josephine. Hi. So you focus on sexuality and sex therapy, and you work around that with your clients and patients. And I'm just excited to have you on because I haven't had many episodes like this on my podcast. Well, good. There's not that many of us around. (laughs) Well, I do want to get to kind of the top questions that people ask their sex therapist, but maybe can you just define sex therapy first so the listener has a better understanding of that as the foundation? Yeah. So, you know, my official title is clinical sexologist, but sex therapy is a term that people understand better. I do counseling with individuals and couples around relationship issues and sexual issues. So while most people might go to a mainstream therapist for, you know, communication issues or fighting conflict, but they never get to sexual issues because most mainstream therapists are not that comfortable talking about it or are not trained in it. So people come to me specifically for sexual issues generally, and we get to the bigger picture of their relationship because sex doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's always about the bigger picture of how people show up in the world and in their relationships. So this idea, I think when people think about sex therapy, they think it is all about the specifics of their sexual life. And what you're saying is it's much more complex than that. Yeah. It's a broader picture of who we are and how we show up in the world and how we carry ourselves and how we show up in the world is not that different than how we show up in bed. For example, if you're somebody who keeps yourself small or has a lot of anxiety or all that is going to show up in bed and it can be addressed. So when you and I were talking about what we wanted to talk about for this podcast, you came up with this great idea of the top five questions people often ask their sex therapist. So I really do want to get into those top five questions. I think I'm curious. So should we just get started with those? Sure. Let's jump in. So one question I always get is, wow, you have such an interesting job. How did you become a sex therapist? So I grew up in France. I know I don't sound it, but I did. I was born and raised in France. And people there have more ease around sexuality. It's just not the big taboo subject it is in the U.S. And apparently my parents wanted to save themselves some time and they decided they'd let me ask questions. And by the time I was five years old, I had all the information because apparently I'd asked all the questions. So I knew all about how babies were made. And also in the background of my childhood, there was this call-in radio show 
every afternoon about sex and relationships. So whether I was at my best friend's house doing my homework or at my French grandmother's house, this radio show was always in the background. And then, you know, I was a late bloomer personally, but I was the one telling my friends, you know, make sure you have birth control. Don't do anything you don't want to do. Make sure you're getting something out of it. And it's not just all about him. I was the one dispensing all this advice. And one day a friend of mine said, God, Claudia, you always say the right thing. You always make me feel so much better. You should be a sex therapist. And at the time, I, was, I think I was a ski bum in Aspen, and I had been a water ski instructor at Club Med, and I was a little confused. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So I went back to school, got a master's in psych, got a PhD in clinical sexology. And uh, that's sort of the medium-length story about how I became a sex therapist. Hmm. And then the next question every single person asked, and I've been doing this for 30 years, every single person at some point asks this question is, am I normal? Everybody wants to know if they're normal. And what I tell people is, I don't really care if you're normal because normal is this perceived norm of what people out there are doing or what you think people out there are doing. And you don't need to be doing what you think everybody else is out there out there is doing. I only care about whether what you're doing works for you. I don't care whether it's normal. Who cares? Is, that, is it working for you and whoever you're doing it with? So that's my short answer to, you know, am I normal? And I wonder why people ask that. Do you think it's because they maybe are wondering if they do need to fix it? That is a great question. Nobody has ever asked me that, why people ask that question. I think it's because people, because it's so taboo and it's so compelling and it's so vulnerable and people want to make sure they're not weird or freaky or People don't want to be rejected for their sexuality and they just want to make sure that there's nothing wrong with it. So maybe it's this idea that there's the shame around maybe wanting it to be better or different or shame around not functioning in the way that other people maybe do. Yeah. And or shame about having proclivities that aren't necessarily sanctioned by the culture at large. Because really, people are very varied. I mean, people are not all just doing, you know, missionary position on Saturday morning. You know, I mean, people are doing all kinds of stuff out there. I mean, I know I'm in near San Francisco and you're like, you know, there's a lot going on. But really, sexuality is very varied. Hmm. Right. Right. But I also think it probably you have other people who have hypoactive sexual lives. Right. And the one question that they often ask is like, is it normal to not have a lot of desire? And so I'm curious how you answer, I mean, how you would answer that question. Yeah. And that's actually one of the questions I always get. Why do I have low desire and is it okay? So I start off talking to people about desire versus arousal because it's two separate things that tend to get confused I talk to people about desire is the willingness to engage. It's the willingness to get started and see what's going to happen. And the heavy breathing, lubricating, contorting, panting, that's arousal. That comes later. So you can come to desire from three places. You can come to it from your crotch, that horny, throbbing loins kind of feeling. And guys have testosterone, and for them, it's happening more in their crotch. And that's okay. It's not bad. It's just different. 
You can come to it from your heart because you love someone and you want to feel close to them. So that might be a reason to engage and see where it goes. Or you can come to it from your head just because, well, you know, it's been it's been a couple of weeks, a couple of months, you know, a couple of years, and it would be a good idea. And so it doesn't matter where you start. And it doesn't matter if one person is 100% in their crotch and the other person is like 20% in their heart and 80% in their head. It doesn't matter. It's about the willingness to get started. So often people think they're supposed to have that horny, throbbing loins feeling to have desire. And, you know, menopausal women or women who have, you know, given birth and like hormones are still out of whack and they're exhausted and sleep deprived and breastfeeding and their body's recovering. And they're like, you know, man, I just, I'm so not interested in sex, but it doesn't mean they don't have desire. It doesn't mean they don't have the willingness to engage. And I always tell people, if you have low desire, there's a very good reason why. And nobody's broken. Nobody needs to be fixed. And it doesn't mean you're with the wrong person. It's just a matter of figuring out why you have low desire. Is it something that you want to change? And do you want to change it for you or do you want to change it for the other person? And that changes. Sometimes you can be the low desire person in one relationship and maybe you can be the high desire partner in another relationship. The dynamics of each relationship kind of dictate who's the high desire and who's the low desire. But it doesn't mean anything's wrong. So that was the third question, I think. Yeah. yeah. What is the fourth? Various versions of how can I get what I want in my relationship? That's a complex one. Yes. And it starts with a conversation that needs to be a skillful conversation. So when people go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, they get a handout for how to get what I want in my relationship. Because I, you know, when I was on radio, I was always being asked this. So this, so my formula for the conversation is actually adapted from Alison Armstrong, Celebrating Men. She has a whole program about relationships with men. So the first step is you ask for time to talk. If you're a woman talking to a man, it's very important to say, you're not in trouble. I'm not upset with you. Because if you tell a guy, I want to talk, he's like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. What do I do? And he's not receptive. So you want him to be receptive. And then you praise him or appreciate him for something that's related to what you're going to ask for. It's not like, you know, thanks for taking the garbage out last week. And, you know, I'd like for us to have a baby. You know, you need to appreciate him for something meaningful. And then you need to be specific about what it is that you're asking for and keep it simple. So it might be, you know, it might be I want a baby. It might be I want to go to Maui for our next vacation. It might be I want to get out of the house early in the morning three times a week to go to the gym. It doesn't matter what it is. And then you talk about what it would look like and what it would not look like. Because you don't want the other person to go into a disaster scenario. It's like, oh, my gosh, she's going to be up at five in the morning every day. I'm going to be exhausted. I'm not going to get to sleep. You know, it's like. You know, you want to tell the other person what it's going to look like. And then you want to tell the other person how you would benefit, why it's meaningful to you, and how it would be beneficial for them. 
not just in a, you know, happy wife, happy life kind of way. You know, it would support our relationship or. And then the very last piece is you got to ask the other person, what do you need in order to give me what I need? And that's where you have to create the win-win. And it's not a tit for tat. Like, well, if you're going to, you know, go to the gym three times a week, well, I want to go hunting with the guys, you know, twice a week. It's not that kind of thing. It's like, how are you going to make this work? How are you going to create a win-win? So that's sort of the medium-length answer to how to get what you want in your relationship. And that last question, you can spend a lot of time on that. Right. Yeah. This also takes a lot of coaching in some ways, right? Because it's maybe not the way that someone's used to communicating. Yes. And I tell people, I'm going to kind of micromanage you here. Would that be okay? And they're like, okay. And the thing is, once you get the hang of this conversation, you know, I tell them, I'm, I'm going to email it to you. You can laminate it, stick it on the refrigerator. But after a while, this will come naturally. And so it might be, I would like you to initiate sex more often. You know, it doesn't have to be every day. You know, you don't have to like scatter the rose petals every time. But it would make me feel desired. It would make me feel wanted. It would make me feel like you're a teammate. And it would make me feel like, you know, you find me sexy. And what do you need to make that happen for me? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you could tell me some ways that you know for sure are going to work for you and turn you on because I don't always know. Like, how do I know if you're in the mood? How do I know if you're receptive? Well, if I'm watching a football game, I'm probably not receptive, you know. I guess you were talking about heterosexual couples. How does this differ, if at all, with same-sex couples? It doesn't. I mean, there's issues of coming out, there's issues with family, but on the whole, it's not different. Everybody's vulnerable. Everybody wants to be loved. Nobody wants to be rejected. Everybody wants to be accepted. It's no, yeah, I decided a long, long time ago. It's it's not that different. I mean, the mechanics of who does what might be a little different, but, you know, we're all vulnerable. We all want to be received. And what's the last one? What's the last main question you often get? You know, the last one is about anxiety and performance anxiety. A lot of people complain about guys have difficulty getting an erection, keeping an erection, coming too soon. And I did a a TED talk, which is on my homepage, about performance anxiety in women. Because as women, we can always be penetrated. You know, if we have performance anxiety, it doesn't necessarily show. There are things like, you know, dyspareunia and difficulty with arousal and orgasm, for sure. But performance anxiety, women have performance anxiety just as much as men do. And it's about, you know, feeling inadequate and people are getting in their heads and I call it tripping, you know, the design, oh my God, is it going to work? Is it going to work? And, you, know, you know, they're just tripping. You got to get out of your head and be in your body. If you're not in your body, your body's not going to respond. If you're up here, you know, thinking negative thoughts, your penis is like, all right, well, dude, you know, you're not paying attention. I'm not doing this with you, you know, get back to me some other time and we'll try this again. And performance anxiety in women Women worry a lot about getting aroused quickly enough. You know, one line I have is women are like crockpots, men are like microwaves in terms of arousal. 
It's bad design, but there you have it. And women of all ages often engage in intercourse sooner than they are ready for because they're concerned that their partner is going to get bored or think they're frigid or get lockjaw or, you know, get impatient. And so they get anxious and they cut it short. They cut the foreplay short sooner than they should. And they engage in intercourse because they think that that's the main event and that's what's supposed to happen. So women have performance anxiety just as much as men. As you were talking, it made me wonder, I know you've been in practice for decades working as a sexologist. Have you noticed in kind of the modern world we live in, have themes changed around sexual dysfunction or questions about sexual functioning? Well, you know, porn has always been around. It's more around than it was 30 years ago when I started. Sometimes people think that Porn is how it's supposed to be, you know, that women are supposed to just sort of, let's just say, tolerate a lot, put it mildly. And guys think that they're supposed to be, you know, dynamos and, and be kind of crass and inconsiderate. I think there's a lot, there's a lot more porn for women. That's a good thing. Websites that actually have porn designed for women has a plot It's a lot less crass. Dating apps, everybody's on dating apps now. I mean, I used to help people write match.com ads, you know, 20 years ago and field responses. But now it's everybody's swiping this way and that. And there's there's dating apps for all kinds of ethnicities and age groups and proclivities and sexual preferences. So that's more in the mix. But on the whole... I would say, no, the issues, again, at the risk of sounding kind of mamby-pamby, people are vulnerable. People want to be loved. People want to be held. People want to be touched. And all ages, you know, I see clients mostly 40s, 50s, 30s, but I see clients in their 20s and I see clients in their 70s. Sexuality evolves over the course of a lifetime. I love it when I have older clients who are still trying to improve their sexual relationships. On the whole, no, I would say it hasn't changed much. And in terms of the work that you do with clients, how long do they stay with you? Is it time limited usually, or are they with you for longer periods of time? It varies tremendously. And everybody, when they do, you know, I I offer a free 15-minute consultation, and they always say, well, how many sessions is it going to take? And I say, well, it's a reasonable question. It's not one I can answer without us having even a session. But I'd say, if you want me to throw out a number, I'd say eight. But that's a ballpark number because sometimes at the beginning we're addressing an issue and maybe we would meet weekly. And then we might meet every two weeks or every four weeks kind of for maintenance. You know, they don't want to get complacent. And so they kind of have maintenance sessions to talk about all the stuff they don't talk about the rest of the time. I have had some clients who have been with me for, I've got one guy who's been with me for like, I think 20 years. He just calls like on an as needed basis, emails like, Hey, you know, can you fit me in? I have a couple guys like that. I was once a birthday present and she requested sessions with me. 
And I think they would come like once a month mm. for their session for years, years and years. But on the whole, people see me, I don't know, I'd say eight, 10 times. And I think the other thing that people often wonder about sex therapy is, do you give people specific instructions about intercourse or is it more about the connection that someone has and how to improve desire? I mean, so I guess that's a question that a lot of my patients often ask about sex therapy and are confused about that. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a huge question. People often want to get into the doing of sex. And I do have a conversation with clients that I call the nitty gritty, where I get into the nitty gritty of who initiates and how and who does what and how do you know when to do that and what do you do next and when do you, how do you know when to stop and what are you thinking? And In that conversation for me, there's a lot of information about assumptions people are making about each other and conversations they're not having and faulty beliefs that get in the way. But people are often like, okay, well, guys in particular, because you know guys want to fix. It's a wonderful trait. But when it comes to sex, it's not a doing thing. It's a being thing. And that's harder for people. And I talk to people about settling down and the conversation about desire. Just get started and see what happens. It's not about what you're going to do. It's like, how do you want to be with each other? As humans, we're wired for connection. And that's where people experience heartbreak is because they experience the disconnected. Couples fight because they're disconnected. And they're just kind of like, you know, trying to find a way to make contact. And they can't make sexual contact because they're fighting. It's the disconnection that's heartbreaking. So it's all about this. And, and as I get older, I definitely focus a lot more on connection and Because as we get older, we're more capable of it. You know, in your 20s, it's like body parts, you know, slamming together. And and people think that's all there is to it. Because emotionally, sometimes that's all people are capable of. And with age, what makes it good is the the exchange of energy and the eye contact. God, I talk to people about, do you have sex with your eyes open or closed? And they say, well, closed. And I say, you know... I have allergies. You can't sneeze with your eyes open. You just can't. But you can definitely have sex with your eyes open. It's not like in the movies. And then I go, oh, my God, eyes open. Oh, wow, that's really scary. I'm like, isn't that crazy? To not, People are reluctant sometimes to have their eyes open. But that's the eroticism. There's so much exchange of energy just in the eyes. Interesting. Well, are there other questions that we haven't gotten to that sometimes people get confused and about sex therapy or what it is. I mean, I, I found this really helpful because I, I, mean, I think I'm assuming the listener had questions of their own about what the process is. And I, I find these focusing on these questions actually really helpful. Yeah, those are the biggies. Infidelity is another issue I handle and I handle it in a slightly different way in that There are no victims in my office. So it's always about how does this make sense? You know, why did this happen in your relationship? It's not like there's a good guy and a bad guy. It's not that simple. So infidelity, desire, discrepancy, one person wants sex, the other one doesn't. 
perinatal, you know, with all the, everything that goes into, you know, sex on command, infertility, postpartum, all that goes into making babies and then babies wreck your sex life because <laughs> you're exhausted. Perimenopausal, I love it when perimenopausal women find me. It's like, oh my God, you know, I felt like I was old and dried up. And then, and, you know, I love my husband, but I'm just, it just hurts. And I just, and I'm like, okay, you know, let, let's talk. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's never a dull moment no. in your career. And there's just, there are so many topics. I really love what I do. It's never boring. Yeah. I'm always happy to go to work. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of these questions and just being very open about the work that you do. I think it's probably very helpful for the listener just to understand why they might think about seeing a sex therapist too, and how a sex therapist might help them think about things and maybe just dispel some misconceptions about what it is as well. Yeah. And remove unnecessary suffering. I'm against unnecessary suffering. And, you know, sometimes people suffer unnecessarily because they haven't had certain conversations or they, you know, they just don't know about certain things. And also this idea that someone's sexual life is an important part of their life. It's a huge part of quality of life. It's part of life energy. I tell people, and it's kind of like, you know, if you have an inflated beach ball and you're trying to stuff it underwater, it'll stay underwater a little bit, but then it's going to pop up somewhere else and you can jam it back underwater, but it's going to pop up somewhere else. It's the same with sexuality. It's part of life energy, no matter what that looks like for you. Even if you don't think of yourself as a very sexual person, you still have that awareness that you don't feel like a very sexual person. And there's no particular way anybody has to be. But I do feel, maybe it's the French woman in me, but I do feel strongly that it's, it's part of quality of life. Before we say goodbye, I, I want to mention to the listener that we'll have information about you and information that's on your website on the episode description. But before we say goodbye, any last words you want to leave the listener with? That the way that people show up in bed is not that different than the way they show up in the rest of their life. And the blind spots that we have in our lives show up in bed. And so improving your sex life can improve all the relationships in your life. Yeah. Good place to end, I think. Well, thanks for being on. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Josephine. My pleasure. All right. Well, take care. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.